0: As Mary said, I've been doing this for 27 years. What strikes me most this Sunday is the different mood I have today. I usually find that when we're all filled up beginning our season, I have a certain joy and excitement about the possibilities of all of us people. This year, I have more of a a feeling of uh, glad to be back in the bosom, kind of more of a reassuring feeling. And I'm quite sure what that's about. And that's about this past summer, which has been, was unlike any other summer I've ever had. There was more illness and tragedy and death this summer than I can remember. But of course, I'll always remember this summer, because it was the summer that Matthew died. Matthew, most of you here I think know, 16-year-old son of Todd and Lynn he uh, began in our nursery school he played in every corner of this building Uh, from this podium not long ago he went through his coming of age ceremony he was um, this summer our groundskeeper you notice the grounds haven't been kept since july 14th Um, he was in a killed in a car accident and um, There's no question that his loss, his effect on certainly my kids, all our kids, most of us. Um, I don't know why. Why? Because we knew him so well, because he was only 16. The tragedy, the senselessness of it, I don't know. Um, But besides the tragedy, I'm going to always remember this summer because of the response to the tragedy. Uh, at the heart of it is definitely Todd and Lynn who opened their home and their hearts to everybody. And I mean that everybody in an astounding way. I don't know that my heart could ever be as open as theirs seemed to be. But the response of this community is what I'm also going to remember. And in some way, I know that the response of this community is not different from what we do all the time. It just that it happened one day, one time, all at once. And it was so moving, so powerful. It was a memorial ceremony held in Silver Spring. Silver Spring gave us the armory. The police rocked off downtown Silver Spring so we could have easy parking. The media thought it was here, and they all camped out here. (laughs) It was not announced in any newspaper. It was not in anywhere printed where it was going to be, when it was going to be. 800 people showed up, mostly all standing. The dark, dank armory was literally, we were surrounded by flowers and food brought by all of you and more. The walls were decorated with pictures. I mean, the only problem with the event was managing all the help that was coming just spontaneously. And then when it was over, it was completely taken away with so many hands doing so much. really was an incredible demonstration of how people can care and take care of each other, how all the socializing, joyful times means we're also there for the tragedy. It was a celebration that included so many people having a piece of it, that it really was clear that we know how to celebrate the good and the bad with meaning. But all of that is the fruit of this community. And while I'll remember it, it's not my task today to talk about the fruit. Today is about the tree, the roots and the limbs that nurture that kind of fruit. It's about the religious philosophy. What I'm going to ask you to do today is to approach this with your head and follow with me an argument for the heart, a philosophical statement, piece by piece. And what I'm about to say is not dogma, because part of this philosophy believes that people are born naked of ideas and that we have to learn and weave together whatever we learn in life to figure out how the world works. And that's a very individual task. You either do it or suffer from your ignorance. But this perspective that I'm going to put out is a perspective that was the original spark for the original generation and has kind of been the thread through all of the community and all the things that this community has ever done. The spark begins after the Civil War and really with a young man named Adler, Dr. Felix Adler. At age 22, he had already attracted the attention of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who asked him to be the president of the Free Religious Association founded the American Philosophical Association, colleague of William James, the father of American uh, psychology. He was for 30 years the chairman of the ethics department at Columbia in his department with John Dewey, probably the foremost American philosopher of this century. He was a scholar, but he was more, he was Promethean in his desire to take what he knew and have a good effect on the world, on the future. He had a view of history, but because of it, he had a sense of where the future was going, and he could see some alternatives. And he very much thought that some alternatives were better than others, and he wanted to make clear where and why. Very specifically, he noticed that in the centuries preceding him, There was a great material revolution, a revolution of materialism, meaning a change of understanding of philosophy, science, politics, economics. Politics had become democratic, economics, capitalistic and socialistic, philosophy, enlightenment, science. Technology was, of course, around the corner, but beginning. But there was not a similar revolution in religion He saw that the ancient spirituality and modern materialism were about to be in great conflict, in collision, and that what was needed was a synthesis for fear that they would only damage each other and the best of both might not survive. He saw that as the literalness of the ancient spirituality lost its power. So would the religious communities that brought people of different families together, that inspired ideals, that taught ethics, that gave people a social agenda beyond the soap opera of politics, that those institutions would be weakened. Well, the problem was also in 1876, another group of people, theists who decided to call themselves fundamentalists, also saw the problem. And they organized and they're with us today as a very powerful force. The ethical philosophy, the common ground that Adler sought to build was equally rejected by both sides. To the materialists, it was the the materialism of ethical culture was just too scientific for the fundamentalists. And on the other side, the spiritual concern was too spiritual for the materialists. I happen to believe that we're now living in a generation where the ancient spirituality and the modern materialism has shown some of the weaknesses that Adler predicted. And that for us, his argument is more obvious to more people. Our time is now. When you look at the churches of America, polls show that only 67% of our people in the United States belong to them, and only 25% actually attend regularly. Two-thirds of Americans claim that their point of view is secular rather than religious. The smaller group, the fundamentalists, are more organized. But they're not more in numbers. The church decline is a decline of what they call, when I go to minister meetings, brand loyalty. People switch churches because the parking lot's more convenient now. Churches no longer list their denomination, the more successful ones. Success is because of the humanistic programs. They hate that word, but they... I mean, how good the choir is, how good the Sunday school is, how good the community is, is what determines why people go. And yet we look at the world, and what we see is religious war. And it's not just really religious war. Underneath it, it's a war with materialism. Eritrea will not allow any money for hospitals for schools to come from outside the country because they see that their religious spiritual culture will compete with whatever material culture whatever strings are attached to that money and they don't want it they're isolating themselves against the secular world that we live in there's a war between old-time religion and modern secular material lifestyle There was a time when almost all questions about healing, about agriculture, about weather, about anything, the future, was addressed to a religious person, a religious body, religious institution. But in the days of science, economics, and politics, there are so many other places that provide us with much more precise answers that fewer and fewer and fewer issues and questions are being brought brought to church, so to speak. Western theism is a way of organizing a culture's mind such that we can understand how the world works. But it was designed for a population that was illiterate, it was, didn't have a concept of reasoning, that communicated with each other by telling stories, poetic epics that contained hopefully great wisdom and sometimes some ignorance, sometimes good intention. But the mind that was being addressed was a mind that saw the world in three levels. There is this flat earth, underneath we have an underworld. Bad things erupt from there. And above we have a sky, a heaven world. And that's how the world is organized. But in the modern mind it's not organized that way. So the notion that was once so literal that there's a man, a father, on a chair, on that cloud, outside the window, right now, listening to, not me, but your thoughts. <laughs> and deciding what he thinks about it. That was a literal truth. But for those of us who've looked above the cloud, at best we have to make it a somewhat abstract, somewhat invisible, as it was not invisible to the mind that accepted this idea. Also, in the ancient mind, power, creativity, was always hierarchical. The king was closest to God. Good stuff came from the Lord. Good stuff came down from authority figures. We know that. Authority and theism are one. In our age, we're much more democratic and organic. It's this enlightenment, we assume the creativity goes up, not down. To that mind, the ancient metaphor is less real, more abstract. And finally, when we go from poetry to reason, we have to negotiate from, I just love the idea that no matter what happens to me, the person in charge of the world, in charge of reality, is my benevolent father, who's all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful. I sleep better at night knowing that. The only problem is, that helps my heart, but when I go to my head. I have to say, well, why do innocent people suffer? Is God not knowing enough that they suffer? Is he not loving enough to care? Is he not powerful enough to do something about it? Ever since reason became the important tool, that concept has become ever increasingly more abstract and more metaphor because it doesn't stand reasoning. All of these problems have been ignored by fundamentalism. The result is that the materialists have taken the separation of church and state and made it into a segregation of sacred and secular, a segregation of things spiritual with things secular. consequently, religions, rather than contending with the modern day issues that we face, have remained ancient and have made themselves into kind of like health club options. You can hang out and have a community experience, and you can join a church, or a health club, or a Rotary Club, or a, one of those. It's no longer the central institution with a social agenda encouraging us to find our spiritual vitality, to be inspired by a sense of ethics towards each other, to a progressive world. It's not what it's doing. Materialism in its segregation, acts as if it doesn't really have a philosophy. You can have any philosophy you want. But you know, you become what you do. And if what you do is produce, whether it's widgets or ideas or services, you become a producer, a tool for the product. And if anything the market wants, the market can have, and you're gonna produce it, where are the values in that? Is it worth producing? That's not a question. Is it useful? It's the only question. Can it be used? Can you be used? The nice thing about the God's children metaphor is at least we're all somehow inherently part of the whole, important to it. I mean, after all, we're a member of the family. But in the materialistic metaphor of how we're going to program our minds, people are dispensable, interchangeable, valuable as long as they're useful. Well, that's not bad to have it work. But if that's the only value system that's being pumped, if there's no other talking about any other value, that's who you become. So that in the quiet of the night, when you know you're too sick to go to work anymore, are you useless? Do people really care? Are you connected only as long as you're a cog in the wheel? those questions come up in the materialistic life metaphor. Now Adler wanted to create from this something new because he saw that materialism was not um, developing any language for the inner world. And, and, and this issue between material and spiritual issue Adler I think understood because he was a student of ancient Greece. And this was really the issue that Socrates struck because Socrates was surrounded by sophists. Sophists were um, uh, technical educators. Sophists were teachers who taught about architecture and business and healing and law and computer programming and things like that. (laughs) Their purpose was to learn how to master your environment. And that was going to be the way to the good life. But Socrates liked to ask questions. And he would ask, producing more toward what end? Knowing how is not knowing whether it's worth doing. Will it make your life better? He pointed out that in addition to that outer environment, there was an inner environment. And he said in the inner environment, the thing to do is to know thyself. Where does joy come from? How come in the same situation, one person feels joy and someone doesn't? Do they know how to find their joy inside themselves? Are some people more loving because they know how to create that experience of love from inside themselves? Where do your ideas, where does your creativity come from? Aren't they originally originated inside yourself? When a person has a calling, a sense of purpose of doing this particular thing, why that and not something else? Who knows, where does that calling come from? Somewhere inside themselves? Everything you're going to experience comes from that source. So Socrates would argue that to discover how to connect with that inner source of vitality, to know yourself, to pay attention during some of your day to what's going on inside, not just to the outer environment, but to develop some language, literally, some habits, to describe the events and occurrences inside you was what was necessary to experience joy, love, creativity, and purpose. He said the goal in life, the goal in education can't be to master the world. That's just, it's too infinite. It's not possible. It's instead to learn how to claim all the powers that are in your human spirit that you got born with, that are inherently there for you to find. That's what paying attention to creating a good life is about. Material versus spiritual. When Adler began to do his synthesis, for me, an important turning point because for many of us, and I have to say I was included, trying to sort out um, uh, escape, if you will, from a, the kind of the ancient spiritual metaphor, which I, most people seem to believe. And it's like I, it was a pushing off toward things more material and secular. But Adler went to Rome, and when he was in Rome, he liked to visit cathedrals, and he visited them early in the morning before people got there, and it was still dark. And he could hear somewhere in the darkness a woman, and she was talking. She was talking to the saints, saying all the tragedies that had recently befallen her, the, the Heller. And she was asking for some divine intervention to help her. And as Adler could hear her talking in the dark, he thought, like, how strange. I mean, there she is. She's speaking to nobody, expecting some grand response from nothing. How sad. And then he began to think about all the centuries upon centuries of human beings who had similarly talked into the air expecting some grand divine intervention. And then his mind took a little turn, and he thought, if a person was to assume that all of humanity was perhaps insane, was that person sane that maybe in it all The task was not to debunk, but to find the kernel of truth. And that became his mission. He was a student of Immanuel Kant. And Kant, among other things, gave us a new understanding of how the human mind works, particularly how words work. All experiences only happen inside of each of us, inside of you. I'm never going to experience how you experience even color certainly not life. Your experience is yours. The only way we can find out whether we have even remotely similar experiences, if we create a symbol and say, oh, I was feeling this now. Oh yeah, me too. And we begin to get some kind of sense that what's happening in you is approximately what's happening to me, sort of, we think, because we call upon the symbol. But if I say to you, Joe knows what that means. Unless you know Harek, you don't know what I said. There's There's no common experience. Because the symbol we chose does not unite our experiences. Wedding ring symbolizes marriage. But if you lose your ring, is your marriage lost? Of course not. Blindfolded woman carrying scales symbolizes justice. We wipe this image off the face of the earth, out of the minds of humanity. Is justice gone? No. People still know when they're not being treated fairly. There's still that sense of outrage about it. There is that experience of justice, regardless of the symbol. And so Adler says, if the concept of God is no longer meaningful, If the metaphor never seems real to you, does it mean what that metaphor was intended to represent is not real? What does it represent? He looked at all the gods of the world, the gods of history, sky gods, sea gods, lords, kings, judges, fathers, all kinds of images of God, not always just the father. And despite all those differences, he could find among them a common ground. Because when you read their law, God's law, the behaviors that you must follow in order to experience and be one with God, whoever God was, there's a commonality. And those are the ethical principles. The universality of our experience about how do you create the good life is what is remarkable. Adler writes, ethics are the product of a long history of human struggle, failure, progress slowly and bitterly learned by human experience. Truth must be respected, honesty encouraged, justice secured, love prevail, whether the force that controls the universe is a jealous Jehovah, a benevolent father, or the laws of reality. Adler suggested that at least in English, God would be better spent, spelt with two O's. And a kind of like, for those of you who like Myers-Briggs, we could be talking about a, a thinking-feeling, a, a, a Platonic-Aristotelian split. Now, whether you think of God as a being who rewards or punishes certain ways of being, or whether you consider God some principles of behavior that creates an ideal way of being, The real question is not to do away with fundamentalism, but is to draw theism and secularism to the question of what are the principles of behavior that make the world work? What are the principles of behavior that maximize the human spirit individually and collectively? That's the question. That's the central religious question, whatever poetry or language you use to get to it. I want to just close with, a big idea, it probably would have been enough for Adler to make that observation. I know for many people that's enough. People go, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But Adler went a full step further. Because he said, if the way that human beings organize their consciousness with a supreme being who were rewarded and punished, if that's gone, And materialism doesn't supply anything else, except you've got to be productive. How do we know which ethics are really ethical? How do, what reinforces them? Maybe I'll be ethical when it serves me and unethical when it doesn't. I mean, why is it going to matter? Are are we going to have a shared worldview, all of us, within which ethics makes some sense? Because it wasn't good enough to say that old-style theism wasn't working. His question was, what's going to work for the centuries ahead? What's going to make sense to tell people that ethics are real? They have consequences, whether you notice them or not. Why would people believe that? Adler started with an understanding of the basic paradox inherent in human nature. And I know many of you have words for this, and even if you don't, I'm I'm sure you'll know exactly what he's talking about. He called this the manifold nature of humanity. It's to recognize that simultaneously you are two mutually exclusive beings. You are simultaneously completely an autonomous being. You were born your unique birth. Only you suffer your pain, only you will die. You make your own choices. You have your own feelings, your own thoughts, completely unique to you. You decide your actions. No matter what outer circumstances you face, how you respond to those circumstances is gonna determine how your life turns out and who you're gonna be. Some people feel an obstacle and lay down and die. Some people see an obstacle and get up and climb and they learn that they can climb obstacles easily. It's how you respond. You're completely autonomous, that's yours. And that's true about you and about human beings. But simultaneously, you are completely dependent you belong you are connected or you die you're born into a family culture that either feeds you holds you or you don't develop as what we call a human being your 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 culture either nurtures you and empowers you educates you or not it gives you opportunities or not we're domesticated animals we don't survive by taking from nature what we find and what we get. We relate to each other. We're dependent upon each other for virtually all of our daily life. If our larger society fails, we die. So the problem we have is how do I serve my autonomy? How do I make sure that my vitality, my creativity, my perspective is fully out there and present? and not crushed and yet at the same time how do I make sure that the culture I live in is one which is being well taken care of well served when do I surrender my autonomy in order to allow my larger self to thrive how do you elicit the best from both that he said is the central ethical question and with it he created a manifold an ethical manifold this is an image of a of 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 the world not as a a supreme being on a chair but if you will a supreme all-inclusive organic community a little less cuddly up to but a little more accurate i think a spiritual he called it the spiritual manifold or the ethical manifold it was not something it was not a state of being towards which we were growing instead It is a way of being that can happen to anybody in any moment. It's a supreme way of being. It's a moment when your vitality, your joy, your love is there. You're experiencing it. How do you create that eliciting the best from self and other environment experience? That became the question. How do beings that are both totally dependent and yet completely independent manage their well-being? Well, he took for his model the organic model. You know, most of the universe is entropic, you know, things are just randomly, unrelatedly floating around. But the organic model is in stark relief to that. It's elements finding a way to relate to each other such that each element maintains itself, its essential unique self, but relates to all the other elements in a way that is synergistic, that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And when it does that, it produces energy. It produces life. It produces more than any piece could produce. While at the same time, valuing every single piece. You take a piece out, the whole thing dies. That model, the organic model, rather than the hierarchical model, he thought, was a more realistic metaphor for describing how life really works. What connects us together, he thought, was something, behaviors, that would in fact maintain the essential uniqueness of each part, the essentialness of each part, the uniqueness of each part, while at the same time creating a whole that was bigger than all the parts. And that, he says, is where we get ethics. Because ethics are the very behavior that create that experience inside and outside. For example, virtually all of the God's laws have respect pretty close to the top. I count, you count. That there's something um, essential and useful about human beings. You can get mad at me, but you can't disappear me from the face of the earth. If you do, we no longer have an ethical culture. You live in a world of disrespect you're going to get this respect someday, somehow. It grows like a contagion. So there has to be respect for all the pieces. There has to be a truthfulness. If I don't accurately represent my experience, and you don't either, we're not in the same reality. We can't be in the same system if we're not using language designed to connect us, Truth. if you're willing to treat yourself better than you're willing to treat somebody else or have a society where that happens, won't what goes around come around? Why invest in the other when you know you can get ripped off? There's no trust for that. There's no generosity that will come. Kindliness, recognizing that at there are moments that we all need to care, to take care of each other. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is wonderful because forgiveness, which again is on virtually every list, is recognized that human beings make mistakes. You have to make mistakes when you've got two masters. When you make mistakes, you make sins. Sins literally meaning mistakes. Missing the mark, behaviors that miss the mark, mistakes. You have to be able to acknowledge that there are mistakes and not just be sorry for them. Sorry is cheap. What you have to be is recognize that that was a mistake, make an amend, and learn a lesson from it. That was a mistake, trial and error learning. I'm going to do it different next time. That's essential in an ethical manifold. If that's what happens when mistakes are made, we all learn, and the manifold gets better. If that doesn't happen, we get disconnected. The synergy gets destroyed. Finally, let's just, I'll just stop with responsibility. Responsibility is being willing to respond to the whole sometimes. You know, it's like the heart saying like, hey, I'm doing my regular beat. I got this food stomach digesting down there. And you want me to speed up? Hey, no running. I'm not doing that. I don't care what the system needs. I'm doing my part. When we're not responsive to the needs of the whole, the whole gets eaten. All of these behaviors take a very high level of skill. Adler's thought was, that why we need very strong religious communities is for people to get really clear that while you may be unaware of the consequences of these kinds of unethical behaviors, it's having a spiritual effect on your state of being and the state of being of every group that you touch. And for you to be wise enough to know that some behaviors may be optional, but some behaviors have great power to connect you to your inner vitality and the vitality around you. And some behaviors destroy that. And it's important to know that that's a fact. And second, it's important to know how to make it happen, because it isn't easy. It isn't easy. It's a mastery in life. And that is the mission of the ethical society. The reward, I think is a reward that I know that some of you felt this summer even in the most tragic moment. And that is when you have a moment in which people are really are connected synergetically, it feels terrific. <coughs> it feels like nothing else. And if you've ever had it even once, you know it's real. You know it's there. And it's that feeling. Not about worshiping a supreme being, but learning how individually and collectively to create a supreme way of being. That's what we're doing here. And uh, frankly, I think it's a very pretentious thing to try to do. But hey, I'd rather fail doing that than doing virtually anything else. And I'm really pleased that other people want to try that. This is the beginning of our season in which our theme is creating harmony. And what we're going to try to do is take on Not the theoretical question. This ends the theoretical part of our year. We want to take on the how-to questions. How do you create harmony in a real world? And we'll do it piece by piece. Next week, Mary Harmon will be speaking on the benefits, the fruits, what one ought to get from a community like this. And we'll complete this September with our newly elected president, Donald Spears. Do you know Donald Spears? Stand up, Donald. He's our newly elected president, Donald Spears. The good news and the bad news is that the success of our community is bearing so much fruit we don't know where to stack it and so we have some decisions that donald's going to lay out for us do we spin off do we um grow i mean do we move what do we do how do we deal with um, success and i i noticed there's a number of newcomers here i want to welcome you to take on our communal fruit here i think you'll enjoy it we welcome welcome here uh those of you who are members eat more take more uh the more we take the more we get and uh Um, I look forward uh, to to this year with you. To be very honest, though, I'm also looking for people who resonate to the tree, to the roots of the limbs I've been describing. Uh, People who might be sitting there right now and say, you know, I just might have a sense of calling myself for making this happen. And for you particularly, I want to close with a story. And it's a story about a farmer who always won at the State Fair for best seed. Corn was his best. And year after year, his corn would come out number one. And one year, the competitors from all around the state found out something about him. And that was that after every contest, every year, he took a trip and he visited all of his neighbors. And he distributed his best corn seed to every one of them. And He said, why do you do that? And he said, well, pollination doesn't happen just in my fields. It goes on through the whole valley. And as the seed of my neighbors improves, So does mine. So if you have a hankering to distribute some seed in the world, we need you. Thanks.